Hey, man, you want to do a read? Whoa, I'm not into books. <laughs> <laughs> books are for crooks. Yeah. <laughs> but do you know what isn't for crooks? No, tell me. Long sliced beer. Hey. Have you ever had that stuff? I don't have loose lips, my friend. Oh. Oh, maybe I do, because I have, and it's delicious. <laughs> I'm a, uh, I like the uh, Hops de la Vista, mm-hmm. which, is a, which is a delicious Indian pale ale. Mm-hmm. And um, you could pick some up at your local beer store. That's right, because it's a local beer. That's right. Mm-hmm. East End, baby. Enjoy. High five. Okay. You don't know what that was. <laughs> Hi there, this is Greg Legro. And this is Jamie Dew. Of Fully and Completely. Um, You're listening to... <laughs> Welcome to Fully and Completely, the bi-weekly podcast where we chronologically look through the discography of the Tragically Hip. I can't fucking do it, man. That's Greg's domain. I'm sorry. Today's guest on Hipsteries is writer and journalist Michael Barclay. Maybe you have read some of his pieces on the band during the last tour in McLean's or elsewhere. Perhaps you've read some of his music writing over the years. Or maybe you have read or are reading or are going to read The Never-Ending Present, The Story of Gord Downey and the Tragically Hip, the book that Michael published uh, earlier this year. So sit back and get ready to listen to the conversation that Greg and I had with Michael about his experiences with the band, writing the book, um, and some of his favorite tracks. We're going to intersperse throughout the episode as well. So let's get right into things. This is Michael Barclay on Hipsteries. They shot a movie once in this hometown. Everybody was in it from miles around. Out at the speedway, some kind of thing. Get behind 
Margaret Speedway. It's Anne Margaret's scene. Well, I can't touch her. I can't get behind anything. But I can't get behind anything. much and all of you and to our crew thank you uh, welcome to the show thanks so much for having me here today. thanks for being here yeah really exciting good, good mm. to be among geeks yeah 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 <laughs> my own kind yeah. i should clarify you are in the right place yes <laughs> yeah, yeah. absolutely so um I, I guess to to start off um Tell, I mean, tell us a little bit something about your about your background, your your Where story leading up to the, the journey into writing. Yeah, <laughs> what does that look like? Yeah, well, in the beginning, yes, <laughs> which are also the th- first three words of my book on purpose. Um, uh, I started writing for my high school newspaper. Um, I uh, started it after it had gone dormant. My friend Barb Pettick had started it, and Scott Humphrey, and then. Um, I took it over and had no idea what I was doing and couldn't believe that the principal gave me money to print this thing. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of amazing. Um, and then university was just the first week I walked into the campus paper and said, I want to write. And I wrote about music every single week, became, uh, the entertainment editor of the year after that. And after university, friends of mine started a magazine. So I went to work for them for 
pretty much literally peanuts mm -hmm. and um and and everything went from there um that magazine lasted for six years it was an alt weekly similar to now magazine or i magazine in yeah. toronto um and then um then I worked at Exclaim Magazine, National Music Magazine, for mm -hmm. a while. And then CBC's Brave New Waves, a radio show that changed my life uh, more than once, as it turned out. Mm -hmm. uh, in Montreal for three years. And then uh, I worked at McLean's for eight years. That's the short story. Yeah, <laughs> so you, you dove right in with music writing. That was pretty much... It's pretty much all I've ever done, for yeah. better or worse. Where did your uh, interest and love of music come from? Um, I, I don't really know. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes you're just born with it, I think. Yeah, my my dad was a big fan of a lot of different kinds of music. Right. Uh, my mom was a great appreciator of arts in general. Mm -hmm. Took me to see lots of things. Uh, I started playing piano at age five, um, mm. and uh, yeah, huge ABBA fan then and now. That was <laughs> the first big obsession. That's great. Uh, anytime you're having a bad day, just put on an ABBA record. The world is just better. <laughs> it's very important to my mental health. Um, and then, uh, uh, yeah, and then for whatever reason, always drawn to Canadian music, oddly enough. Right. And and I don't know why that is. Uh, I was always very interested in stuff that came from here. I was always mm -hmm. very interested in the idea that there's a lot of stuff that is only ours that doesn't translate elsewhere. And then yeah. also very interested in what translates elsewhere and why. For some yeah. reason, as, a, as an early, even like preteen music fan, that was very interesting to me. Because I would listen to 1050 Chum and I would notice... That during the day you wouldn't hear that many Canadian songs and then after 9pm or something they'd cram them all in there it was like the all Canadian hour for like three hours I was like why am I only hearing Rough Trade and Blue Peter and whatever else the payola is like after 9pm I don't understand what's happening all their uh, Canadian content so the area. politics of that kind of fascinated me early on too it's mm. like oh we're ashamed of this stuff so we're just gonna like tuck it away over here it's like well why why are we like that as Canadians that doesn't make any sense mm -hmm. So that actually was a very uh, formative experience, I think, <laughs> uh, discovering about how how we the degrees to which we respect our own music and the ways we treat music.
and uh, and again, I think the the hip are very much their own thing. And and during that last tour, it's like you know you read all these very overly explanatory articles about like, well, they're blues based rock sound. It's yeah. like uh, really maybe the first couple, but not really the rest. Yeah, like, Twenty five years ago, they really <laughs> went away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it does very interesting me uh, seeing people try and describe what the tragic hip is. Like, imagine you know what. U2 is to Ireland and what Springsteen is to America mixed with a bit of Bob Dylan and mystery. It's like an REM. It's like, well, mm-hmm. you know, good luck trying to figure out what that sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I'd never heard them before and I'm reading that description, I'd be like, oh, really? That sounds awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, it's strange, though, when you think about, you know, like how epically big they were. So I think that makes it difficult to um, describe that band as well. Uh, you know, just their their giant appeal right Mm -hmm. um in this country Mm -hmm. and uh like forget about genre forget about like what the records sound like there's just you know something enormous about the appeal that they had in in this country um so so that muddles it a little bit when you're trying to or muddies it a little bit when you're trying to Mm -hmm. you know explain what the hell this thing is Mm -hmm. uh i think but it's also like, uh, as someone points out in the book, um, you know, lots of people are just successful in their own country, you know, and it's like, you know, North Americans, for the most part, don't really get Serge Gainsbourg, you know, or, mm-hmm. or, or Jacques Brel or whatever, Herbert Gronemeyer or some German superstar that we have like, just what is happening? Uh, Heino, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, like some things don't translate to different contexts, different cultural contexts. And that's totally fine. And that makes, sure. it, makes it exotic. You know, there's lots of bands who are, uh, we know a lot of the famous Australian bands, but there's tons of Australian bands who don't break out of Australia. For sure. Know? Like for every In Excess or Midnight Oil or, or whoever, there's dozens of, of people who who just never there's, make it. There's the else. go-betweens. Yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah, a great yeah. example. Yeah. yeah, great band. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's funny how that works. Um. So when you your approach to music writing mm-hmm. uh, is. A, were you wanting to write when you when you dove into it? Was it to um, explore your interest? Did you want to look at the live experience, the album experience? What was what were you drawn to as a writer? Uh, just everything. I yeah. was. Uh, I don't know. That's hard to. Sorry, it's a little bit of a. That's, yeah, that's hard <laughs> to answer. Blanket question. Uh, I spent all my spare time writing and thinking and playing music, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and that, that was just my obsession. And I, I do feel like. The more I grow older, and uh, as I've always been growing older, I uh, I feel like just having music around me, I think, uh, helps me process things. Mm-hmm. Um, I get very irritable if I'm not around music. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm the I think same it, way. I think it quiets the brain. I think mm-hmm. that maybe without it, this you know hum builds up in the brain, and then mm-hmm. uh, it's it's very therapeutic in many ways. Uh, not just ABBA, but all music. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, so in that sense, it was just it was always very important to me. Yeah, oh, that's great. I, I feel the same way. If I don't get a little bit of time for music in my day, and I'm and, a little bit off. And live music, I, I do feel like uh, if I don't go for a while, it's like I like I need to go to church. Like I need to mm-hmm, I need mm-hmm. to go and have that communion with a performer, and and be around other people and and have that experience. Like I do really miss it if I don't see, you know, at least one show a month or something. Sure. That's great. What's the last show you saw? Last show I saw was, uh, 
I saw maybe it was well actually the very last show I saw was um, Dinner is Ruined who oh, are a big part right. of the book they yeah. played the Dakota on uh, Friday night oh that's great uh, they're a rare sighting these days absolutely um, and uh, they're all beautiful people and mm-hmm. it's totally ridiculous and different every time and it's a great venue to see them too uh, it was yeah mm-hmm. and it was a lot of fun and I think before that was Great Lake Swimmers at uh, oh. Danforth Music Hall nice yeah very good yeah. good good yeah it's, it's good to experience a live thing you know mm-hmm. you forget sometimes you go a long period without it and how necessary it is yeah yeah and I think a big part of the appeal of this band, uh, this band being the hip, is that um, uh, the reason people went to see them so often uh, was because uh, Gordani wanted it to be different every night. You know, mm-hmm. he once described uh, every live set as like a, uh, every show is a problem after which he wanted to throw solution after solution after solution. Like just see what what would happen. Right. Um, and part of the reason the book is titled The Never Ending Present, there's many reasons, but but one of them is that's that was his approach to performance. Mm-hmm. And that was, we don't know what's going to happen on the stage tonight and we're going to figure it out together, mm-hmm. you know? And um, one of the most interesting things about researching the book uh, that I found was the crossover, the Venn diagram crossover in the audience between hip fans and dead fans, mm. Grateful Dead. And that shocked me um, in retrospect, I don't know why, because I, I thought about it. I, I do have a lot of friends who fall into that Venn diagram. Sure. Because um, I really hate the dead, and mm-hmm. I always have, and I've, yeah. I've done blind taste tests. Me as well. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I'm right there with you. Well, <laughs> like I've done, I lived in Guelph for 12 years, so I was had a maximum exposure and uh, lots of blind taste tests. You yeah. know, you walk into a party, you're like, what is this shit? Oh, it's the dead. Oh, fuck, yeah, of course it is. But, uh, you know, obviously I have enough friends who are into them enough that I have a measure of respect and I have a lot uh-huh. of respect for the non-musical aspects of the dead. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, I think with the appeal there to of both those bands to the same people is that what's going to happen on stage tonight, yeah. right? And <clears throat> with the dead, you are, uh, I'm assuming you are like, you know, you're looking to ride the same wave they are and you're kind of zoning in whether it's, Garcia's guitar playing or, mm-hmm. or whoever else in the band you kind of connect on that wavelength and spiritually you're there with them and, and you're going there and so with the hip um, sometimes maybe it's Rob Baker's guitar playing but I think for 98% of the time it's Gord and what mm-hmm. he's doing mm-hmm. and he would also uh, communicate in code so you might go to that show knowing all the lyrics to the songs and that's great but as you know there'd be parts in the show where he would go off somewhere else <clears throat> Most of the time, he would uh, he would either be workshop workshopping something new, as we know when you go back and listen to those things that many songs we would later come to know are appear in in other songs, mm-hmm. um, or he'd be singing his favorite song by the Week of the Ends or Jane Sibbery or right. Crowded House or something totally random, um, and sometimes not always, but sometimes he would be doing that to make a lyrical connection with the song he's actually supposed to be singing at the time. Or there would be some there would be some reason he would be singing. It wasn't just mm-hmm. that he happened to hear it that day. And so as an audience member, you're there in the audience and you know you might be one of a hundred people who know who the weekend ends are in that audience. Right. And one of twenty who are picking up on the fact that he's singing this particular song. <laughs> but what you know what I mean? Like you feel very special as an audience member. Yeah, you, absolutely. Because you feel like you are connecting with this weird thing that's happening in oh, yeah. down, he said, you know. Or if you're lucky enough to actually figure out the two or three person narrative he's enacting in front of you. Right. 
Um, I've said it before. They're the only band I can think of that has Easter eggs. Yes. You know? <laughs> That's remarkable. another great way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my friend Kate Fenner, who is one of the, who is the only backup vocalist ever tour with the band and therefore had in-ear monitors, mm-hmm. uh, said, you know, she came off stage one night and, and she said to Gord, uh, I really liked what you're doing there. I enjoyed that little dialogue between the two. And he's like, you're the only person who's ever heard, like, you know, who, who would ever know that because you have the earphones. In, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, it's, yeah, lots of Easter eggs all over the place yeah. in every show, you know. Yeah. And I, I think that was a big part of the appeal. Uh, reason people went back. Mm-hmm. That's un- unpredictability. You know? and uh, I, I, night after night, people who would, like, book their vacations around, you know, American tours and, mm. um, and, uh, and go see them year after year. Even if the new record doesn't hit, they're still going to go to see the live show. Cause they're, For sure. They, they I can see the dead thing, you know, the connection for the you know, the live experience and how you know mm-hmm. drawn in you can be by the hip. A few another odd band that got connected to the dead thing when dead was no more. A bunch of dead heads started following Ween around. Oh, yeah. oh right. which at first I was like, but then later I'm like, oh right, no, that makes sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> makes total sense. So. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, I guess you need a you need a a deep catalog, right? Yeah. Yep. And I mean, both those bands yeah. cover that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the hip certainly does, and and for me that was always the appeal. Yeah. I mean, I saw them a whack of times in a in a pretty short amount of time. Mm-hmm. I think I fall into a category that a lot of people fall into. That I was, You're I there was for the nineties. I was there. Yeah, <laughs> I was. I was there, and then I faded away and saw them sporadically uh, right. you know after that point mm-hmm. but even then if like you say if if i wasn't as familiar with the record i would go and hear you know a song off you know day for night that they didn't play live on the day for night tour but right. they're throwing it in there right now as mm-hmm. a as a as, as a, a bone cut yeah. yeah and it's so yeah. you know it's almost like gamification of of music right <laughs> like you're there and you're like i i, I win i have a bingo card that <laughs> You oh know. yeah, and, and as I learned while researching this book, because I'm in a, I'm, my live experience is very similar to yours in terms of chronology, um, you know, I learned that people were well aware that they hadn't played Fiddler's Green for twelve or fifteen years or something, right. and then suddenly it popped up again in two thousand six. Or uh, there's a couple other songs like that that were noticeably absent from set lists for more than a decade, mm-hmm. and then would suddenly come back or never come back. I think thirty years old never did come back. Really? Oh wow! Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think I might be wrong about that. It was certainly sure, offset sure. list for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your experience with the band then, um, I mean, was at, at, like through their rise up. Yeah. So certainly not day one because I didn't grow up in Kingston and I was too young. But basically, ever since uh, Q107 first started playing Small Town Breakdown mm. um, in 1988, uh, or uh, yeah, I guess it came out in December 87 in Kingston and everywhere else, mm-hmm. January 88. And then I saw them at, um, uh, at Molson Park and Barry for, I think, a CFNY picnic. And they were on at 1 p.m. And I'm not, wow. I can't remember who headlined. It was either Jeff Healy or The Box. Oh, wow. Oh, the wow. Box. <laughs> See, I've told that story on stage many times and people are like, who are The Box? Uh, Closer like, together. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I actually, uh, the first two, two Box records, I'm a big fan of. Yeah, um, sure. And uh, I heard Lafer de Mucci in, in the uh, store the other day, was walking on a thin line of insanity. And uh, <laughs> <clears throat> but anyway, uh, the hip were on at one p.m., which gives you an idea of how big they were, which yeah, was yeah. not at all. Yeah. Uh, and I was riveted. Um, I was a big fan of the Gruesomes at the time, mm-hmm. uh, garage band out of, 
uh, Montreal, mm-hmm. Og Records, and um, I thought they were very similar because they clearly loved like '60s garage R&B. They had like the nasal singer, and, right? And uh, and they were just really exciting. And you know, I think we're all of the same premium vintage here. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, the '80s is a weird time for rock and roll, and and a lot of '80s records sounded like garbage. Like even mm-hmm. great bands made garbage sounding Terrible. records yeah, yeah. and um uh and the hip always sounded really raw and electric and that was very evident uh seeing them so i saw them whenever i could again i was born in 71 so i couldn't get into a bar legally until 90 mm-hmm. um although i grew a beard at age 16 which helped a bit nice. but um <laughs> but i saw them at the entire place forum in the concert hall and you know like, oh wow and wherever i could and then um you saw them at the forum the forum that was uh, with the rotating stage. Oh yeah, where he, he lit his boots on fire during Boots Are Hearts. I think it was the last oh, show of the boy. tour, and he lit his boots on fire on stage. That's great. And he was, he was paddling. He was standing on the, uh, uh, not the railing or balcony. What do you call it? Just whatever the thing yeah. that separates the stage. Sure. <laughs> and he was standing on that as the stage turned, and he was like canoeing oh, around. Man, that's and, awesome. um, but then I, I I I think that was the last place I saw them for a couple of years. I don't think I saw them again until '94. Mm-hmm. So I took like at least two or three years off. Right. Um, and that's their first, that's their first arena outing. Yeah. Well, I'm I didn't see sure. them in the arena. I, so I, I didn't go see them cause I was just starting to get into other kinds of music and the Reostatics mm-hmm. became my favorite band. Oh, lovely. And, um, you know, I mean, university is your mind's being blown by all kinds of things and, and yeah. the tragedy were very popular and it was hard to see them. So it was like, okay, well maybe there's somebody else's band now. <laughs> um, but then I went to see them in 94, the infamous Canada Day show with Lanois and yes. Spirit of the West and Reostatics mm-hmm. and Eric Strip mm-hmm. and everybody. Yeah. Um, and it was amazing. It was, uh, I thought it was because I hadn't seen them since it'd become huge. So that was my, I went from seeing them with like 12,000 people at the forum or whatever that holds mm-hmm. um, and uh, to 40,000 people. Right. And everybody's singing back every line. Yeah. And, I was very conscious that I was um, witnessing someone at the peak of their powers. You know, uh-huh. I felt yeah, like yeah. this is like, you know, seeing Hendrix in 68 or this right, is right. like seeing the clash in 78 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like it, it felt like that to me. Um, and the whole lineup, like the whole day, I was a big fan of, of pretty much it was a great, everybody yeah. on that bill. So I was, I was there that day too. Yeah. And all day. Yeah. Phenomenal day. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, and that, that day is really what inspired me to write, um, the book have not been the same, uh, which came out in 2001. I co-wrote that with, with two friends. And that was mm-hmm. like looking at the lineup that day made me want to write that book. Um, uh, and then, so after that, I, I, again, like you, I saw them every, every tour after that, mm-hmm. uh, through the nineties. Um, and then I saw them, th- ended up seeing them three times in 2000 for a couple of different reasons. Um, and, uh, and then not again until '09. Actually, uh, again, I was just listening to less rock and roll and getting into different things. Sounds very similar to mine. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm about '09 or or '10. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I really liked "We Are the Same." My lady really liked "We Are the Same," and she hadn't seen them in many many years. And our friend Jim Bryson was playing in the band, so all these things. Well, hey, let's go see the tragedy again. Yeah. And uh, and it was amazing. If there's a go- And we all pulled the trigger All I remember is sitting beside you You said you didn't give a fuck about hockey And I never saw someone say that before You held my hand and we walked on the wrong way You were 
Thank you. Taking that break and not having seen the evolution, I hadn't seen him really as a dancer, right? Which by '09 he was in, like he had been for a while, but yeah. um, it was he was just a completely different performer, and that was incredible to <laughs> yeah. witness, you know. Um, but then I've I, never heard it described that way, a dancer. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he was he was like pirouetting around and and uh, just very expressive, and and you know the theory that a couple people float in the book is that he. Um, he went from, you know, he was known for rants, so-called rants. And then you could tell he was kind of getting sick of doing that. Um, and then around 2000, he starts uh, studying choreography with Andrea Nan, um, who's uh, married to his friend Andy Mays of the Skydiggers. And, mm-hmm. um, and then he finds a new mode of improvisatory expression. Right? Mm-hmm. So he starts, uh, he starts um, improvising through gesture and movement a lot more whereas mm-hmm. before he was just kind of like rock and roll guy you know shake your head uh kick yeah. kick turn around drop the mic you know yeah and and now he became very much more um uh great intent in every move you know and right. you really see that in the final tour and the final show oh, yeah. like big time um really playing with gesture and uh clowning mm-hmm. and um uh, yeah and i mean he's not a great dance like you know like he's not you know he's not prince or you know uh and he's not i don't think he's even a great um you know like modern dancer necessarily but he knew those tools and he knew how to use them mm-hmm. and and uh he used them in in a way that very few people do like maybe you're you know someone like bowie or uh, annie lennox or um you know mm-hmm. uh, people who know what they're doing yeah you know? yeah well like when you say clowning i i went to the Humber School of Comedy, and one of the one of the programs that we had to take was was clowning or yeah. leisure, and it was. Um, it, now that you say that, it's like I'm I'm envisioning him on stage, like his face, no, even, yeah, right? Yeah. Like he especially was so expressive. Yeah, yeah, that connected a so, lot of dots right there. Yeah, <laughs> well, especially in the last year because he he couldn't do that much with his body mm-hmm. uh, for a variety of reasons, the cancer just being one of them. Um, so there was so much on his face. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, and I think he was very conscious of that um, as well. Because I think, he, you know, he knew why people were showing up. Um, and he knew what he didn't want the show to be. Yeah. Uh, and so I think, I, I mean, who knows? But I, I, I feel like he he, um, he went into that tour with great intent about what he was going to be doing facially. Which again, who thinks about that? <laughs> like, how many performers, you know, he knew that people would be watching the monitors, watching for signs of fallibility or, mm-hmm. you know, something. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was very conscious of that, I think. Oh, again, I, a theory. I, yeah, yeah, no, I'm with I would you. Think so. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I, I kind of got that feeling with the, uh, the, the performance in the last tour of uh, 100th Meridian, mm-hmm. which has that quite sing alongable mm-hmm. bridge. Yeah, uh, I mean, if I die of vanity, yeah, which I was really like, how's that gonna? That's gonna be really heavy to witness that part of that song. Mm-hmm. But they played a like a almost they they it wasn't like the album cut at all for that just for that bridge. It ramped up. It was funkier. It was almost like a little rap. They've been doing that for a while though. Had they? Yeah, I hadn't seen them, in, so I wasn't sure. Like because I, I feel like that took the tension off of that moment which mm-hmm. i thought mm-hmm. was maybe calculated or at least if it was it was wisely because it would you know didn't rob the yeah. show of 
its momentum or yeah. they they've been they, they certainly do that on that night in Toronto which is 04 mm. yeah so okay. that yeah. arrangement of that song right. is 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 old but um mm. uh but it was powerful that moment and that's uh uh that's a, kind of a moment people wait for in that song oh sure and uh um and at the last show and I have no idea if this is conscious or not if it is conscious it's brilliant if it's not it's totally understandable but he only flubbed two lines in Kingston. Mm-hmm. One of them was, I remember every single fucking thing I know. Mm-hmm. And that's the line he forgot in that song. Yeah. Or did he forget it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or did he just choose not to say that? <laughs> um, anyway, either way, fascinating moment. You mm-hmm. know? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was your, your experience seeing them live is similar to mine. Mm-hmm. I'm not a writer. At what point did you do your first story or or piece on on the hip? That's interesting question that I have not been asked all year. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember writing about the hip in the nineties. I think I'm I'm pretty sure I wrote a piece about that Canada Day show. But I I was always around much bigger fans than me, like in the in the not the newsroom but whatever that. The magazines I worked at, there was always somebody there who was a much bigger tri- hip fan than me because I will never win a hip fandom contest because like <laughs> the bar, tough, the, the bar is very, yeah. very high. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, um, uh, so I was never that guy at anywhere I worked. And also, um, I wrote a lot about it about a lot of new music and underground music and mm-hmm. not rock radio music. So I didn't interview them in the nineties. I never, they, you know, I was never on that list. Um, and, uh, and then it wasn't until 2000. So in 2000, my friends and I were writing, have not been the same. And there's a chapter on the hip. And my friend Jason Schneider was the much bigger hip fan than I was. So he wrote the chapter in that book. Um, that's how we split that up. We all took chapters. That's how you co-write a book with two other people is you just <laughs> clearly delineate who's writing which parts. Right. So Jason wrote the hip chapter and, um, um, but I really wanted to interview the hip as well because I was writing some of the more overview chapters about like, what does it all mean? Um, and also I was writing the reostatics chapter and other like opening people who'd opened for them. So Jason and I went to do the interview together. And uh, I still to this day don't know why they agreed to do the interview because we were two nobodies who mm-hmm. worked or at that point used to work for a defunct all week, all weekly. Um, and uh, but my friend Chris Brown was playing in the band. He was a keyboardist on that tour. And uh, I sent him the outline of the book. And I think he brought it on the tour bus and said, hey, these guys are not schmucks. This looks like an interesting project. Yeah, oh, very. Um, and I think... Uh, Again, I don't know. I think what probably appealed um, to Gord Downey in particular about that book was that it was not a book about the hip. I think he liked that about it. Mm-hmm. I think that um, this for th- reasons we can talk about later if you want, um, they never wanted a book written about them. So the fact that this was a book placing them in the context of their peers, I think appealed to him. So mm-hmm. it's like, here's a book about all these people and the hip is right. just one of the biggest um, examples of this. So... Uh, somehow um, the band and or Jake Gold agreed to give us an interview and told us that the only place it could happen was in Syracuse. <laughs> yeah. 
The face you just made was the exact one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we're like, yes, of course. We'll drive the, I don't know what it is, six, eight, I don't know how far, sure. I can't remember how far it is. Yeah, yeah. You got to go to past Kingston again, not quite then south. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and so we had like about two hours with Downey in the hotel room and at least another hour with Sinclair on the bus and, wow. and uh, talked about all, all <clears throat> kinds of things. Uh, why am I bringing all this up? Oh, because I'd never really written about them before. So right. yeah, that's right. So I had, um, so Jason and I did the interview and then I was also writing for iWeekly at the time. And so this was on the Music at Work tour. And then... Um, That's right. And then when uh, they played Toronto... Uh, they played Massey Hall, right? They played Massey Hall. That's right. So I had, actually, I had gone to see that. And I actually gave it a, a lukewarm review in iWeekly. <laughs> oh. Because I thought they were kind of tired. They, they, the, and that I, was the tour with Kate Fenner. Yeah. Kate Fenner Because I was so excited about those two being in the Chris band. Chris Brown, yeah. And I thought they were really underutilized on stage. Um and uh, I mean, they did give Kate uh, at least one solo turn. Um, she sang on um, flamenco. Flamenco, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah, it was amazing. And um, but I, I just couldn't feel you, you couldn't really hear Chris in the mix, and I was just like, I had such high hopes for this. And uh, and again, I sensed that the band was was tired. And as I found out recently, they were like that was kind of a low point in mm-hmm. band band morale, and that's I think part of why Gord wanted the, those other two in the band. Um, so anyway, I wrote a lukewarm review of the show. Uh, six months later, we end up interviewing the band. That goes well. And then they were coming back to do their arena show at uh, ACC, I guess. And uh, um, so I did a, and and they somehow I weekly got us got the interview or they agreed mm-hmm. to. And anyway, and so Gord found out that I might be doing the interview. So he's like, "Yes, I want Michael to do." It. I'm like, "Whoa, okay, that's amazing." So I interviewed him again there uh, for Cover Story and I Weekly. Um, and then there was one other thing I did in the 2000s. I can't remember off the top of my head now. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it was a Sarah Harmer story for Exclaim. And I interviewed him as like a, a character witness, <laughs> you know, like a second, yeah. secondary source. It's like, yeah, tell, yeah. tell me why Sarah Harmer is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I know, but I want to hear Gord Downey say why <laughs> Sarah Harmer is great. <laughs> right, right. um, and, uh, you know, we have many mutual friends and I'd run into him occasionally oh and he wrote the forward to have not been the same he gave us a poem to run us the forward mm-hmm. so his name was on the cover of that book in a larger type size than the three authors of the book <laughs> which i think he was a little pissed off about sure. um so uh but yeah that's and again so i didn't write about them again until the final tour at mclean's and um they uh uh anyway long story short McLean's didn't know what they were going to do about the tour. And nobody, I think, really knew how big it would become. Mm. And uh, um, I was a copy editor there. I wasn't a writer. I mean, I did some writing for them, but my job there was as copy editor. And mm. they were kind of like, hey, copy editor, do you know something about music? Maybe you should write about the hip. I'm like, yes, I should, actually. <laughs> You're making the correct decision. Um, and uh, so I, I just started interviewing people randomly. Um, Plaskett, Bedini, Cuddy, you know, Sarah, Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, just started putting those up online and, um, they really went viral as they say in the business. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, that was even before I'd written the actual story. Oh, uh, which told me that people were really hungry for in-depth, interesting pieces about the hip as opposed to just like, Hey, they're Canada's band. Yeah. 
like okay great tell me a bit more and uh mm-hmm. and tragedy it's like okay well great tell me a bit more you know mm-hmm. so and then i wrote i had the cover story and exclaim or sorry in mclean's <laughs> um and uh and um and that was very well received on many fronts and management asked for copies and um so that that made me think that there should be a book because there never has been a book mm-hmm. and so that's that's why we're here today
did you transition right into uh, it's time to write a book or how did the uh uh no it wasn't until a couple months later mm-hmm. and i also had i asked them like i um they requested copies of the mcleans and uh i thought i'd just drop them off personally mm-hmm. to the office i'd never mm-hmm. met uh, bernie breen before um so we just had a little chat and i was like have you ever thought about a book and he's like well, i don't know send me a proposal i'll show it to the band right. see what happens because ultimately it's not his call it's the band's um, so I did, didn't hear back. Um, and it, uh, totally understandable. I mean, Secret Path was coming out, like, yeah, completely understand why that was on nobody's radar. Sure. Um, and then a couple months later in February, I asked again, didn't hear back. And then I thought, well, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to do it. Like mm-hmm. it has to be done. Mm-hmm. Somebody has to do this. Uh, I want to do it before somebody, uh, does a hack job mm-hmm. and, um, sells a bunch of copies of a shitty book that's going to rip people off. Yeah. Um, so I decided I was going to do it. And then I got a book contract and then I emailed them um, the day I got the contract. I said, well, look, I, I am doing it. Um, so just so you know, if you can open any doors, you know, I didn't really expect the band to talk because again, they never have, never. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then they just said they would not, uh, uh, they would neither endorse nor assist in this project because mm-hmm. they're working on a book of their own. Right. And that was, one line email, right? So, Fair so I enough. Thought, yeah. I, I thought, well, I'm still doing it. So yeah, copy that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I did. So I talked to everybody else that I could. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, a lot of people I didn't hear back from, but um, sure. But a lot of people I did, and um, you uh, at that point knew what you wanted to accomplish with the book. Like you knew you had a basic yeah. uh, outline of what you were looking to accomplish. Yeah, I knew I wanted to tell the chronological story, and I also knew that there were enough interesting things in this story that made me think about so many other things that I could use this band as a prism to talk about, um, you know, poetry and music because mm-hmm. Bob Dylan won the Nobel prize the same year. We were all thinking about Gord Downey. Yeah. And suddenly people are talking about our lyrics, poetry. I'm like, uh, funny you should ask because yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this guy in Canada. Uh, so, you know, I knew that there'd be a chapter on poetry. I knew that, um, there would be a chapter, uh, you know, just about secret path and, and indigenous issues and, and, uh, so-called reconciliation and, and, and residential schools. Um, I knew that I wanted to write a chapter just about opening bands. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't want to like stop the narrative of the book to suddenly talk about by divine rights somewhere. I was like, okay, let's, let's just talk in one place about mm-hmm. all, all the times they're great to opening bands and what that meant and what's it like to play to people who are booing you and just all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and then as I thought about it more, I'm like, oh yeah, well let's, Let's talk about all the hockey songs at once. Let's have one chapter just about (laughs) hockey. That's great. The cover bands. And then cover bands, which was a total revelation. I was like, this is the only... Mind-blowing. The only Canadian act that consistently for 30 years has had this whole cottage industry of cover bands. Yeah. Like, you know, during the 70s and 80s, I'm sure there were a bunch of Rush cover bands, but there aren't today. No. You know, there aren't a bunch of Brian Adams cover bands. There aren't a bunch of Shania Twain cover bands. Um you know, whoever you want to name, your most popular, there's, but the hip always in almost every province. Oh yeah. Um, and that fascinates me. And what's it like being in a cover band (laughs) when the person you're covering is dying in front of you? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I, I knew I wanted to write about that as well. A lot of fans hate that chapter, by the way. (laughs) Oh, I, I mean, a lot of people like it in yeah. general, yeah. but um, uh, uh, one of the biggest criticisms I've heard from fans is like, why the hell would you write about cover bands? Because yeah, for a lot of fans... fascinating. Well, for a lot... And, you know, 
I was very snobby about cover bands. I, I had never gone to see one before in my life mm-hmm. for anybody. Mm-hmm. You, um, saw, you saw three, right? For the, for I the went, book? I went to see three while researching the book, yeah. Yeah. And I've since seen, uh, actually, no, I've only seen one other one. Um, I did a couple things out east with the Fabulously Rich. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. From Charlottetown, who mm-hmm. are hands down the best of any of them I've seen. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Completely mm-hmm. and fully. They are, uh, <laughs> this guy, Dennis Ellsworth, who also put out one of my favorite records this year. He's an incredible singer-songwriter. Um, albums produced by Joel Plaskett. Um, amazing songs. Uh, and then when the tragic news hit, he decided to, um, uh, he was getting together with his old high school band for a reunion gig. Then they realized no one wants to hear us play our old songs. <laughs> we were never that popular. Uh, and then they thought they would um, learn a bunch of hip tunes and do like a benefit show mm-hmm. for the the brain, uh, Gord's, I'm blanking on the actual name, but the mm-hmm. Sunnybrook Foundation. The, that, right. Yeah. Um, and uh, so they did. And then it, and they're really good. And Dennis doesn't try to imitate Gord or like anything. Like, it's just like, this is a great band playing these songs. Mm-hmm. And um, and they've raised like more than $10,000 for uh, both the, uh, Danny Wenjack and oh, that's amazing. Sunnybrook. I think that's great. Yeah, it mm-hmm. seems to me that's what a lot of the bands are are doing at this They're point. They're doing too, it for right? love. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they take like half the money they make, they take to obviously cover their time and mm-hmm. you know, nobody's getting rich off it. And then um, despite the name of the band. And then uh, and then they donate the other half too. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's wonderful. And yeah. and yeah, they're amazing. So but anyway, so I knew I wanted to write about uh, cover bands. Um, I wish I'd talked to Dennis before I wrote that because that would have been another interesting part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also wanted to talk about what Gord's uh, journey means in a larger rock and roll history context. Um, you know, because that had never been done before. People think it's this Canadian story that you know, oh, the guy from the tragedy of the hip toured with terminal cancer. That's fascinating. It's like it's more than, oh, yeah, like that has never happened anywhere no at the arena level um a national icon confronting mortality like that no um the only other people who have done it are either um uh not the singer so like carl wilson of the beach boys uh did a tour when he was um and he played sitting down the whole time but nobody knew Mm -hmm. like it wasn't a public thing right nobody was going to see the beach boys saying oh carl this is carl wilson's last tour of him also most beach boys bands don't even know who carl wilson is Mm -hmm. um uh, Def Leppard's guitarist is also, um, uh, I forget his actual condition, but he's, he tours in between treatments basically. Um, and, uh, Sharon Jones, who I write about in the book, um, who is incredibly inspiring, but, uh, not as well known and not touring, uh, at an arena level, right? which is a whole other, uh, can of worms. Um, so yeah, it was incredibly unusual. So I, I wanted to talk about I wanted to just draw other parallels and metaphors from the way other people did it from, you know, Warren Zevon to Sharon Jones. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's tons of examples I could have used, but I kind of focused on like just the two thousands sure. onward, you know, and like Johnny Cash's final records and mm-hmm. all that stuff. It was a very wild experience. There really isn't anything like it when there was so much, uh, emotion flowing through everyone and to get such a, a massive, I don't want to say a payoff or something like that, but there was a, like a crescendo of events mm-hmm. having the tour. Yeah. Coupled by there was a new hip album. Yeah. Then a new Gord album and then yeah. another Gord album. Yeah. So many things happened. Yeah. And all of them were uh, wonderful. Uh, mm-hmm. It was such a, a great 
way to deal with this you know horrible thing going on is all this mm-hmm. uh, beauty and uniqueness happening at the same time is really yeah quite and something man machine poem is one of my favorite hip records it's like mm-hmm. they're going out oh, on yeah. a high note oh yeah it's beautiful and um uh it's it's amazing to me so uh the the announcement was may 2016 mm-hmm. and then the tour happens and it builds because mm-hmm. victoria and vancouver tickets were going for face value yeah. Because I think people were still pretty scared. Yeah. And um, it wasn't really until reviews started coming in from the West that the 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 real scramble started happening in Ontario. Like, oh, wait a minute. This is good and this is amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you have that crescendo, as you beautifully put it. And then, um, and then he, so he dies uh, 16, sorry, uh, 18 months. Anyway, about a year and a half after the, after we find out the news. Mm-hmm. He dies, um, and then obviously there's mourning. So there's mourning at the news. There's mourning at the passing, and then uh, uh, six months after that, my book comes out, and um, and people are obviously still very interested. Um, and then I do a book tour uh, this fall, and people are still mourning. Yeah, I think because. Uh, like I, I ran into people who was like, "Hey, I bought your book six months ago. I haven't been able to read it yet right. emotionally," um, which I totally get. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to me. So, you know, I'm a huge Prince fan. Prince just disappears, like yeah. no inkling anything's wrong. Mm-hmm. Then he's gone. Mm-hmm. So you spend the next couple of weeks listening to a bunch of music, um, and then uh, and then I didn't really listen to a lot of Prince after that for a while and then now a bunch of stuff is coming out like he put out that amazing piano and a microphone oh, record yeah, that's great oh my god yeah. uh but anyway so um and and uh you know they put out a compilation of like 90s and 2000s stuff some of which mm-hmm. i'd never heard and it's not a good compilation i can get into the why that is but but it did make me listen to other things it's like okay well this is not very good but how would i do it then i started listening to anyway right so but generally like someone disappears and then you go through that thing for a couple of weeks, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's Tom Petty or whoever it is, mm-hmm. uh, Bowie. And then, um, but like two, almost two years later, are you still in that emotional state? Generally, no, no. I don't think so. Uh, but with, with, with Downey, they were and are, Yeah, you know? And I think it's because, like you said, it wasn't just like, boom, it was like, here's the news. And everyone's like, oh shit. And then like all this other stuff comes out and all this, yeah. all this beauty comes out. Yeah. Um, both in terms of uh, the recorded output and also just uh, uh, you know the spirit of, of generosity, the the, the mm-hmm. ripple effect he had about mm-hmm. the way um, so-called white Canada perceives uh, indigenous issues, um, and uh, uh, yeah, and the way so many things. You know, there's a quote. Uh, Laurie Anderson in the book has this great quote. About uh, you know, I believe the purpose of death is the release of love, mm-hmm. and uh, and if there's any purpose to all of this, then I think that's that's what happened with with Gord's passing. Um, all these people, you know, rediscovering what this music meant to them, their mm-hmm. love of this man and this band and this work, uh, but also you know, uh, love for each other. Like fan communities really bonded together. Oh um, yeah. You know, there's there's lots of great things uh, um, happening with different initiatives. People do like fundraising things all around this stuff, and and 
you know, and I think even just people think about, um, you know, their, their families and, and communicating to people now, like tell the people you love them now, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, you, you really don't know, um, what's going to happen. Uh, so it was really this galvanizing event on many different levels.
how did you how have you found the book tour? Uh, um, it was great. It I loved. Uh, was there sorry? Was there a tour for uh, Have Not Been the Same or no? Okay, so no. this is a, a new thing for you. Uh, book tour is a new thing for me. so I, yeah. I I booked it all myself. Um, and there were a couple of invitations from like writers festivals, but generally, um, I did I booked forty two dates this mm. year, uh, including eighteen dates across the country in three weeks in October. So I went from Halifax to Vancouver, um, and um, I I did Ontario uh, in April May <clears throat> and Buffalo. Um, so this was everything but uh, Ontario, mm. uh, and yeah, just meeting meeting the super, super geeky people who love to share their theories on different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, they like to tell me how wrong I am about in between evolution. Um, <laughs> they, uh, uh, they tell me just beautiful stories about their connection to the music or the time mm-hmm. they met so-and-so and, and, um, and, uh, yeah, like th- there were some, uh, book events that were amazing with like more than a hundred people there. And then there were some with like just four or five people there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those four or five people are the best people because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> they came. Yeah. Uh, but then I also had some amazing conversations with like uh, people in Medicine Hat and Saskatoon. Those were two particularly sparse gigs, but the people who showed up to them were, were really beautiful. Um, and we just had a great time. Amazing. Yeah. That's great. And, uh, and I got to see the country. So yeah. yeah. How, how about that? <laughs> Which I haven't done since I was on tour like 23 years ago. Yeah, yeah, so, that's yeah. great. And that's kind of a nice way to uh, to cap all those experiences. Go, to, you know, get, yeah. get a good look at Canada, you know? Yeah. I just wanted to know if through your research with the with the book, what was your, what you, what's your most favorite sort of story in the book that you learned? Something you didn't know before. Hmm. hmm. Uh, wow. Well, there's quite a few. Uh, I yeah, there's quite a few. I'll just pick one that I, I didn't know that surprised me was uh, the um, the making of Secret Path. So it came out in the fall of 2016. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have the misconception that it was made post diagnosis because mm-hmm. they've really intertwined, or they they just um, they like to believe that Gord Downey facing his own mortality consciously chose to highlight the 50 year old death of this indigenous boy. And and that became his life's work, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's how people receive that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he started making that record in 2012, mm-hmm. four years before as a fully healthy person. Um, and, uh, and so he became aware, his brother actually first became aware of the, the Wenjack story through CBC radio doc. And anyway, long story short, they agree to do something. They don't know what it's going to be. Maybe a film, maybe uh, Gord's going to write some poems. He doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And then, um, coincidentally, Kevin drew, uh, calls him up, um, kind of out of the blue. Cause that's something Kevin drew does a lot of hotspur. <laughs> and he says, uh, Hey, I want to make a record with you. And, uh, Gord's like, great. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin's like, uh, I got some studio, some studio times. I was like, what's, uh, you know, have you got any songs? And Gord's like, nope. <laughs> and he says, uh, actually, I have these poems I just started writing. Uh, Kevin says, great. So they, they start making a record. 
and uh, with um, Dave Hamlin and um, I'm trying to remember who the core people. I know the people who are on the record. I'm trying to think of like who's on every track. Like mm-hmm. I know Charles Spearin is on it and Kevin Hearn's on it. But anyway, um, they they make a record and then uh, they finish it. I think they finished it in 2014. Yeah, early 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, but Gordon didn't tell them what the album was about. And they had no idea. Oh, wow. Until about halfway through. Wow. He's, he's, and then he sat them down and said, by the way, you should know, this is a concept record. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, and uh, tells them the story. And they're floored because they are equally ignorant of residential school history as mm-hmm. much of Canada was. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so now they're like super excited about this music they're making with Gord. And then they finish the record. And, uh, and, and, you know, they're so pumped and, and Gord says, all right, boys, thank you very much. This record will come out in two and a half years. (laughs) And they're like, what What are you talking about? This is great. Like people have to hear this. And, uh, but he wanted to time it to the 50th anniversary of when Jack's death. Right. Because being who he is, he knows that if you have a media hook and, you know, because another great what if of this story is. Uh, I love Gord's solo records. Most people have never heard them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so commercially, a Gord Downey solo record was, you know, ma- would basically make a ripple. So no one was like... Particularly at this point. Particularly at that point. Cause people, Coke Machine Glow and uh, uh, Battle of the News, some yeah. uh, press and notoriety, but they, you know, for a Grand Balance. And, and Grand Balance is so incredible. Oh, yeah. And it just like... Nobody, yep. no, no, it just mm-hmm. passed without a trace. Yeah, love that record. Yeah, um, so nobody cared about Grand Bounce. Very few people cared about Now for Plan A, except for mm-hmm. the hardcore fans. Mm-hmm. It was their lowest selling record. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2012, nobody's itching for a new Gore Downey record, right? So, uh, yeah, so that's a big what if for me. Like, if this just came out, if Gore Downey's healthy, 52 mm-hmm. year old man, mm-hmm. would anybody care? I don't know. Um, so, uh, and wh- another thing I don't know is how conscious he was or not of when the TRC report was wrapping up and when that would be released. And, you know, cause that obviously, uh, would, would raise media profile of the issue in general. <clears throat> so, but anyway, but he, he wanted the 50 time it to the 50th anniversary. So, uh, so that's what he did. So he was, um, he collapsed in December, 2015 and, uh, then obviously that's an intense period for at least a few months there, three, four, five months, and then getting ready for the tour and then the tour. And, but he, uh, and the book was already lined up as well. So the album book was always going to be a package, but then they, Mm -hmm. but what did change is he did decide that they also wanted to animate it and make it an even bigger deal. So the animation Mm -hmm. was a rush job and the guy who did that, Justin Stevenson, like worked, you know, 18 hour days for like six months to Right. And it was finished like two weeks before the first show. Oh, wow. Uh, like two weeks before it was going to go to air. So, um, uh, and, you know, starting up the foundation and and all that other stuff, that was definitely, yes, this is my life's mission with, with what I have left. And that, mm-hmm. you know, um, but the whole thing actually dates back much earlier. And I do think that, like, he reached tragically hip fans. And he reached a lot of Canadians who would who would just rather not think about this at mm-hmm. all, right? And um, and in that sense, it's it's a success. It's an enormous victory. 
and and it's um because the sad truth is that uh you know indigenous people can articulate this and and raise the issue as much as they want but there's a large segment of the population who will just never listen to that mm-hmm. um and the trc report uh you know it it did make a splash but i think it made a splash among certain segments and i don't mm-hmm. i think you do need you do need something like that like i make the parallel in the book like the same way the syrian refugee crisis needed alan Curdy's photograph mm-hmm. this issue needed a face mm-hmm. and and uh it wasn't the face of Gordowney, but Gordowney found the face and said this is a lens this is this is a story through which we can understand this larger issue mm-hmm. um and that's that's a lot of people's entry point. And he was also very clear that um, that this was news to him, and that he felt betrayed by Canadian history that he had been fed. Mm-hmm. So he's like, "Look, it's okay if you didn't know before, because I didn't know either." Yeah. So right away, people don't feel like they're being lectured to. Right. Right. So they don't feel like, uh, "Oh, here's somebody else complaining about something." He's like, "This is someone they recognize and know saying, hey, no, there's something I, I want you to know.'" Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in that sense, I think it, it, it totally succeeded. Absolutely. Well, I think, yeah, I, yeah, I think so too. And, um, I have listened to the audio version of your book mm-hmm. and, uh, I think, uh, how did Strombo do? I think he did. I think he did really well. Um, right. really grateful that you could join us tonight yeah, and absolutely. share some stories. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I really appreciate the conversation. It's great to dig in deep and not do the five minute quick hit yeah <laughs> do you um i mean uh, do you plug the book uh, do you have any do you have anything that you want to it's available now <laughs> <laughs> through ecw press and fine retailers everywhere mm-hmm. great um, it's uh yeah the um it's out in hardcover there's a paperback coming in the spring mm-hmm. uh so i might pop my head up again and do some some things around then right um yeah, and the audiobook uh, George Strombopoulos narrated, and uh, I haven't listened to the whole thing because I'm not that vain. Um, but uh, I'm a little bit vain, but I'm not all the way vain. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I'm told he did a great job. He's been an amazing ambassador. Um, uh, like he's been interviewed about the book, mm-hmm. and uh, he's just been great. Uh, he's, it's uh, I'm really happy to have had him. Um, on board and and representing it and it was very personal for him too um because he knew the band better than i did and and mm-hmm. uh he he said he had to you know stop the tape and pull away from the microphone quite a bit near the end and mm-hmm. um uh, uh yeah so I'm, I'm i'm very grateful uh that he was involved yeah i don't think he could have uh, gotten anyone better to do that that's uh about as good as it gets i think so. yeah hmm. well Speaking thanks. of as good as it gets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there we go. All right. Well, thanks so much. All right. Well, congrats on the whole podcast. Thanks. Fully and Completely is a modern superior podcast, proudly sponsored by Long Slice Brewery. To rate, review, or subscribe to the show, visit Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, or anywhere else you get podcasts. For more information about the show, our guests, or Jamie and Greg, please visit www.fullyincompletely.ca. To join our Facebook group, visit Facebook and search for Fully Incompletely.
This episode has been brought to you by the Modern Superior Podcast Network. 